Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jane Wendy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hello. Hello. Good. How are you? I'm blessed. God is good. I can, I'm so excited. I can't believe it's already Friday and it's already time to answer questions. I'm super excited. Yes. Yes, likewise. Amen. Well, we just want to welcome everybody who's tuning in and we just want to thank you for joining us tonight. We want to uh, ask that, you know, um, you continue to um, rem or remind you guys that we are live. So continue to give your comments, your questions down in the chat below. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitch. I think I just got a message about it. So <laughs> we get a lot of messages and a lot of, um, you know, comments and stuff. So we're super excited to be able to engage with everybody out there. So if this is your first time, we want to welcome you and we hope you enjoy um, your your viewing of our show. And if this if you're a returning viewer, we want to thank you for being a faithful viewer. We ask God bless you all as you watch tonight. So um, with that being said, uh, please, uh, Jay or Wendy, would you mind starting us off with a quick word of prayer? Sure, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this week you brought us through and for uh, the things we got done and for your provision, your protection. And we pray now that your spirit be with us to guide us into your truth. May we all be brought into one, into harmony through you, to grow closer to you and each other, and to learn about your love. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Wendy, do we have, we have a lot of questions. We do. Let's do it. Okay, so Hannah is asking, speaking in tongues is listed as gifts of the Holy Spirit. Interpretation of tongues is listed as a gift as well. It said tongues of fire sat upon on them and they spake with the other tongues. This gift was poured out there and didn't die there. I pray for a whole year to receive the Holy Spirit through speaking in tongues. After a year of bothering God in prayer, I gave up and told him so. I just told him, it's okay. I love you anyway, Lord. Heat came upon my body, and I began to speak in what I believe is an Aramaic tongue. The Holy Spirit began to sing through me and continued for 12 years. It isn't something that takes over your person. You can mostly choose to keep silent. It is for the edification of the church and for guidance of the soul. I'm well, not sure what friend. the question is here. <laughs> well, Hannah, I appreciate your comment and you sharing your experience with us. Uh, that's definitely an interesting um, experience you had. And, you know, I do believe that the gift of tongues is a biblical thing, um, as long as it's done in the right context. And so um, I just want to share maybe just a few verses out of one chapter in the New Testament, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm trying to look up exactly the verses that I wanted to share with you. Um, so as far as, you know, when we have the gift of tongues, I, I feel like we get a lot of questions about this because some people are like, I've heard it and it just sounds crazy. And other people were like, you have to have the gift of tongues in order to, as a sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. And I would say, you know, that the gift of tongues is something very special and unique. Um, and it's something that we have to be really careful about because we can be led by a spirit, but that we have to make sure that we're being led by God's Holy Spirit and um, nothing else. And your experience, I mean, it definitely sounds like, you know, something that was from God. I, I don't question that. Um, but I do want to share just a few verses in first Corinthians, um, chapter 12. And I just want to read verse 10, um, as far as, you know, why the gift of tongues is given. Um, so it, it says to another, the work, so it's talking about spiritual gifts in verse nine. Um, 
it says to another faith by the same spirit to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit so all these gifts are gifts of the holy spirit and to another the working of miracles to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits to another diverse kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues so it's very important when we're looking at um you know the gift of tongues that it needs to be there needs to be an interpretation of tongues and actually if we don't mind going to first uh, corinthians chapter 14 because that's uh, basically where i want to answer or address this really quick as well is in chapters or uh, verses one through five basically it's talking again about spiritual gifts and Paul says something very interesting in verse five. He says, I would that you all spake in tongues, but rather that you prophesied. And prophesying is just basically speaking the words of God. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks in tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, I know you mentioned earlier that you that the gift of tongues is for edifying the church, and that's true, but that's only true if that what you're saying in tongues is being interpreted. So it could be a message from God that you're receiving in the gift of tongues, but it's only a message for God's people if they can understand it, if there's somebody there to interpret. And so we, again, like I said, we just have to be really careful when it comes to the gift of tongues. And if you keep reading in verses 12 and 13, uh, Paul writes, he says, even so, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek you that you may excel to the edifying of the church. That is the most important thing, that we are building up the church, that we are blessing God's people. And in verse 13, it says, Wherefore, let him that speaks in an unknown tongue pray that he might interpret. So as you shared that you were speaking in, you know, a, a foreign tongue, um, that you would also pray that God would give you the interpretation so that you can share with others what God is saying through you. And the last verse is in verse 19 that says, Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So basically Paul's saying it's better to say five words, <laughs> a very short phrase in something that, that people understand rather than 10,000 words, a you know, bunch of things you could say, but nobody understands it. You're not benefiting anybody other than people going like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And, you know, I've heard mixed messages where some people are like seemed, you know, spiritual and all, but I've heard a lot of people who, when there wasn't any interpretation going on, it was just kind of like, yeah, it just seemed really creepy. And, you know, it can definitely turn off a lot of unbelievers to, you know, the Christian experience. So I just want to bring that up with you, you know, and, and pray that, you know, God will put it in your heart to speak through you and that um, you'll get to also interpret or have a friend in, in the church um, interpret for you. So anyways, that's my two cents on that. J.R. Wendy, any other thoughts? Yeah, just two quick ones. It, it's important to keep in mind why the gift of tongues and it, it's sort of undoing what God did during the Tower of Babel where God confused the tongues. So God, as Tina said, is undoing that confusion so that the gospel won't be hindered by what God did to hold back sin and sense. Um, and we see this happening really in power for the first time in Acts chapter 2. If you look at verse 5, it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak, referring to the God's followers, in his own language. And, or, or um, you know, King James might say, in their own tongue. So here we're seeing the gift of tongues actually being played out or, or maybe even the, with the gift of interpretation. And now everybody's receiving the gospel. And we hear later on, you know, that thousands were baptized 
in one day. And this is the power of that gift truly edifying the church. Amen. Absolutely. So, all right. I think we're ready for the next question. All right. Let's get it up. So Athena is asking, welcome back, Athena. I'm going to presume this is the Athena that's been tuning in. So Athena is asking, in Ezekiel 45, verse 15 through 17, it says, sheep will be offered to the prince. Is this referring to Yeshua? Is this when God sets up his kingdom on earth? If so, why is an animal sacrifice still necessary? Oh, since Yeshua gave himself as sacrifice for our sins. Thank you. All right, it's a good question. And Athena, I just honestly, a lot of people struggle with Ezekiel. A lot of people, there's tons of scholarship on there and everybody has their own ideas. And one reason for that is it's just, um, it, there, there's kind of at least two ways of looking at it. Is it, yeah, are these messianic prophecies? Are these prophe prophecies about just the, the children of Israel before maybe Christ would have shown up? Or is this even more in the future? So we have at least three different perspectives and maybe one or more of these could be right. Um, but let's take a look at the context. So first, let's take a look at uh, the verses you mentioned, Ezekiel 45, starting at verse 15. So it says, And one lamb shall be given from a flock of 200 from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, bird offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them says the Lord, and the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. And I think you have already picked up, Athena, the, the issue here of this verse, where if that prince being spoken there was Jesus, then it's like, okay, why are we having these sacrifices going on when there's, you know, to make atonement when we're told uh, in the New Testament that God made the atonement through the blood of Christ? Um, so right there, I think... We could reach a conclusion this can't necessarily be speaking of of christ and and, and post christ times um if we go to ezekiel 45 verse 1 it says moreover when you divide the land by lot into inheritance you shall set apart a district for the lord a holy section of the land its length shall be and then it gives different uh sizes of it but here i mean it's talking about dividing the land and how you're going to do it um you know set up a district for lord like to me this is sounding like okay this is how uh israel should be set up how they should run um and this would have been you know pre-christ and a theory that i i agree with is probably god is sharing a vision his his greatest hope for the israelite people if they had remained faithful and true to him even up through to the coming of christ what would things have looked like and so this is what it is. And, and when you, in fact, look at the temple that's described here in Ezekiel, in this section of Ezekiel, it doesn't fit the description, the dimensions of the, the temple that then was built at the time of restoration. And people are crying and, oh, it's smaller than the last one. And, and uh, people believe that even at that point, God said, you know, you people are, are going astray. You're not 
fitting my plans. So even then, God's chipping away at some of these prophecies because they are choosing to go their own way. Uh, and so, so yeah, they, I would say Ezekiel, these, these parts are God's high aspirations. Um, look at Ezekiel 43. So we're going two chapters earlier. Uh, God says, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its ex exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all in its form and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep the whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. So even right here, almost, I think what I was just talking about, that theory of maybe God was trying to show Israel his highest hopes and aspirations for them. This verse sort of supports that, you know, show them, you know, what I would like, the true pattern of what I would want them to do, that they may be ashamed, realize how short um, or how they come up short with what they're currently doing. Uh, Ezekiel 44, 6, it says, now say to the rebellious, to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have none, have no more of all your abominations. So um, to me, this rules out, this isn't even necessarily way in the future, or even post-millennium. Post this is probably the time that fits the most is going to be, again, pre-Christ, the around the intertestamental period or very end of the Old Testament. If we flash forward to uh, Ezekiel 46, we get more insights. So Ezekiel 46, verse 18, it says, Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritances by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Well, okay, so right here now, would God need to make a law saying that Jesus wouldn't take away uh, the inheritance of his people? No. I mean, so if the prince was Jesus, God wouldn't have this law. We wouldn't be worried about Jesus taking anybody's inheritance. He's always promising to provide us with an inheritance. So to me, that rules out again. This is speaking of Christ. And um, I really believe this was speaking of the intertestamental period. Um, and God really showing his, again, his highest hopes and aspirations, which sadly did not come to pass. You know, what about your thoughts? Definitely be interested to hear yours. I I concur. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that was very thorough. So I think that was really good. Praise God. Yeah. For, for people who might not be clear on what the intertestamental period is, do you want to? Uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. There, there's about 400 years in between them. Gotcha. I'm looking over and seeing quite a few comments. Um, I just want to say, uh, Bible asks us hello to everyone. We, we say hello. And I see Darius Stone says, hi, lads. Hope you're well. Um, so we hope Yay. you're well too, Darius. Welcome, Darius. And then we actually do have Athena joining us. So great. Yay. I hope question for you, Athena. And we have a couple more of yours coming up. Definitely. Yes, it jump and she's saying it jumps around in time. So she's commenting <laughs> on your answer as well. So that's great. Thank you for that comment. We appreciate it. We appreciate your thoughts. And then she has a great verse that says, I love in Isaiah chapter 57, I think, uh, where God talks about how he will have compassion on Israel and be angry no more. Uh, and that this is like a true love story. I mean, it that really is the case. And, you know, you 
I think it's in Ezekiel, right, where God really goes into graphic detail about just how much he feels like he's been cheated on by the house of Israel and how much he's just tenderly cared for them, uh, really loves them, and and just keeps being betrayed. And yeah, we every time we sin is in a sense of cheating and betraying on God, and he keeps taking us back. It truly is the greatest love story ever told. Amen. All right, shall we get our next question up? Okay, another one from Athena. She's asking, I think the begots from David to Joseph are in Matthew. Correct me if I'm wrong. Why does it follow the lineage through Joseph if Joseph is not Jesus's biological father? Shouldn't it follow the lineage of Mary instead? Thank you. I love this question because I think this definitely does rock the boat for a lot of people when they first encounter this issue. So I'm looking forward to your answer, Tina. Oh, praise God. Um, you know, I, I love this question too, to be honest, because I was, I'm very into the begets. <laughs> I think they're really interesting and I think they're really important. And I think it's really important, especially because this is one of the key points that points to Jesus as the Messiah. And you're going to see it shook a lot of feathers too in his lifetime. So it's pretty cool. And I'll try to say it as concisely as possible. But basically we know from the Old Testament that um, Jesus was, um, excuse me, David was given a promise that he would have basically from his seed have, you know, the son of God, the Messiah come from his lineage. Uh, we see that um, as far as I understand, second Samuel chapter seven, uh, verses 12 through 16, we kind of see that basically God promises that he'll establish a kingdom through the seed of David. And we know that the true king, <laughs> the true kingdom is that of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, these two begats, that happened um, in the New Testament. One is in the book of Matthew and one is in the book of Luke. And the one um, in the book of Luke, uh, chapter three, verses 23 through 38, um, most theologians agree that that's the lineage of Mary, basically pointing that Mary was also, in fact, of the lineage or the seed of David. Now, why is it so important that um, Joseph, um, his lineage also be mentioned in the New Testament. And this is what I honestly believe um, is that Joseph, even though he was the adopted father, even though he had no, you know, bloodline to Jesus, he was his basically like, I don't want to say father-in-law, stepdad, <laughs> kind of on earth, his adopted father on earth. Um, you know, obviously I, I want to be very respectful to the heavenly father who's this, you know, who's our only father. Um, but basically Joseph had a very important role to play in that he fathered Jesus while he was on earth. And that's why I think um, in Matthew chapter one, we see from, you know, from the beginning to um, verse, I think it's uh, 17. And so um, after this, just a few verses later, it's very interesting in verse 20, um, the angel says something very interesting to uh, Joseph. And he says, but while, so basically Joseph finds out, you know, that he was <laughs> going to, you know, that Mary was pregnant and Mary was saying, look, this is the Messiah. And I'm sure he was like, you're pregnant and we're not married yet. How did this happen? <laughs> you know? And so, but Joseph was a very righteous man and I have so much respect for him for what he did. And so basically, um, in verse 19, Joseph says he was, you know, he didn't want to make her public example. He didn't want to punish her and he was going to put her away privately. But in verse 20, um, it says something very important. So Matthew 1 verse 20 says, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David. So very clear. Joseph was definitely of the son of David, um, of his lineage. Fear not to take 
thee marry thy wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So the angel gives him that assurance. Hey, you know, she's not lying to you. <laughs> Definitely, you know, the child that's in her womb is, you know, from God. It's, you know, it's, it's from, um, you know, of divine origin. And so Joseph had a role to play in marrying uh, Mary and um, bringing up Jesus as his son on earth. And so why is that important as far as, you know, you know, Jesus um, having both his mother and father being of the seed of David? I think it's just to make it very, very clear. And I think one other reason is, um, that, you know, especially I think during Jesus's time, most people were recognized by the lineage of their father, much more than that of their mother. And so it would have maybe put some doubt in people's minds if, if, you know, his, you know, his adoptive father, of course, wasn't even of the line of David. He, I think that was just something to make it very, very, very sure that Jesus wasn't indeed, um, of the lineage of David. And I think most people who, um, were in his time recognize that. And we see that actually um, throughout the book of Matthew, but I think um, one instance is very clear in Matthew chapter 21 and uh, verse nine, this is when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and it says the multitudes that went before and that followed crying Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. So everybody knew based on who his father was, Joseph, that he was indeed the son of David. And that was really important because everybody knew that the Messiah would come through David's line. And so the fact that his dad um, earthly dad, Joseph was of the son of David that pointed to him as the Messiah. And everybody could take that as, you know, um, an assurance that Jesus was indeed the son of God, that he was indeed who he said he was. And in addition to the fact that, you know, even his mother, Mary was also of that lineage. Although that might not have been as, um, I want to say substantial to people in that time, although it's substantial to us today. And, um, if you keep going, in that uh, chapter, what I think is even more interesting is that, um, you know, after this happened, it says that the, um, as soon as basically, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, Jesus, son of David, it says that the Pharisees were displeased with it because they hated the fact that, I mean, I think they knew Jesus was who he said he was. They just couldn't take it that he was, um, you know, not what they wanted him to be, or they weren't, you know, doing what they wanted. They were, you know, full of self. And so, um, anyways, again, I, I think it's really important because, you know, Jesus being the son of David, again, is just a sign that, or one of many, um, signs that Jesus was in fact the son of God. And I think it's also important, um, when you look at, um, you see this, you know, even Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter one and verse three. Um, he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Um, and then he goes on to say other things about Jesus. So Paul reiterates, hey, Jesus is of the son of David. And that was true by the flesh through his mother and by adoption in his earthly father. There's no question, no doubt that Jesus was definitely of the son of David in every aspect. And that's why I think God not only selected Mary specifically, but also Joseph specifically. And um, so I hope that um, helps you as far as 
maybe understanding why both Joseph's lineage and Mary's lineage are mentioned in the New Testament. And I just hope and pray that that, you know, reaffirms your faith that Jesus is absolutely who he says he is. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is our king. So anyways, I hope that is um, a good enough answer for you. J.R. Wendy, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I know. And, and I think what you said that, you know, it was to remove any doubt, any questions that was um, probably the best, best thing for what God did. Just you know, two lines, no questions as he's totally of the lineage of David. So, Amen. So I'm seeing some more comments. We've got quite a few. Um, yeah. Dana says, yeah, God had all his bases covered. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. God takes care of us. <laughs> no reason to doubt him. Amen. So uh, we have uh, some comments from Vlad Dracula II from Twitch. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And uh, kind of a, a question. So let's read all these three together. Uh, he sure. says, they, they may have seen him as what would now be called a terrorist. Like this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. He was a threat to the established government. That's very true. That's very true. I, I think I really I think they saw him as a rebel, and I think they were just so scared of him because people followed him by the masses. And I, you know, it talks about the Jesus talked about the Pharisees and how they were like they wanted people in the streets to come to him. They wanted that attention. They wanted people to follow them. And you know, he Jesus talks about how they would go search for a proselyte. They would, you know, they wanted to have followers and, you know, they're excited if they have one person following them, but Jesus, you know, just on, based on who he was, he, you know, he didn't have any, you know, money. He didn't have, you know, position in government or anything, but people just followed him because of who he, they could just tell there was divinity in him. And yeah, they were definitely threatened by Jesus. I think both the, the earthly government of the Romans, as well as the, you know, the religious, um, Jewish authority as well. So I think that's a really good comment. Yeah. Thank you for that. And yeah, and it's just human nature, I think, too. And we're just seeing it more and more every day where we just are so intolerant of people of different beliefs. And here he comes in just completely different, completely different so many ways. People ask a question and he answers with like a, a, a question from left field, right? And always making them look dumb, always uh, pointing out their terrible faults. You know, well, Jesus might tell people don't sin anymore. Like, his harshest words would usually, and, and I believe he said this with tear in his eyes, but those would be spoken to the leaders, the people who should have known better uh, and called them out for what they were doing. And and yeah, if you're in a position of leadership and someone is rallying, causing the masses to sort of question how accurate, how, how good, how um, appropriate you are, that's now a threat to your position, a threat to your... Mm -hmm your establishment, your reputation, and they're going to have a very harsh reaction to it. But, and Jesus, I mean, ultimately is the greatest threat to government and establishment. Like he is in uh, Daniel two. I mean, Jesus is that stone that crushes the feet that brings the, you know, all the kings, kingdoms of the world to an end. And so he is, he rightfully is the greatest threat. Amen. I know. And it's so funny because after Nebuchadnezzar had that dream and recognized that Jesus would, you know, establish a new government in the world, he goes and tries to build a statue and say, no, 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 it's all going to be gold. It's all going to be my kingdom. And he couldn't, he couldn't yeah. keep it going, obviously, because only God is in control. And um, what you're saying as far as, you know, how Jesus was, I mean, I, the biggest example of how he was, I just love 
um, Jesus and how his mind worked was in, you see in Matthew 22 when they're like, they try to trick him and they're like, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus, um, it was say in, anybody uh, have a coin, verse, bring me a coin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus face is on perceived, he perceived their wickedness and says, why do you tempt me? You hypocrites. And he says, yeah, bring me a penny. He says, who, you know, um, whose subscription is on this? And they said, Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And it says they marveled and they went their way. They couldn't say anything to him. He just kept them, you know, dumbfounded. There was, you just couldn't outdo or outwit Jesus. And I think that's just awesome. And he had no formal education. You know, he mm. was just who he was. I, I think, uh, you know, well, I don't has- know if there was no formal education because he knew how to read. Oh, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, he wasn't schooled to the level of these people he's going up against. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he wasn't like these religious leaders who went to the, you know, those religious schools and that. If if you've, have you watched The Chosen? I think it's a great depiction of this whole dynamic where, you know, they really zero in on the way the Pharisees and, you know, the, the, um, the Romans and everyone like are watching Jesus and his every move and, it, it's it really I think it really makes clear um, that dynamic that's going on. I think it's an interesting visual. I really liked season one, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I I think they did a good job. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Vlad, for joining us for the question. All right. Next. Thank you. <laughs> question number four. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, his comment. So I'll let you know right wrong. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yep. Great. All right, let's get our next question up. All right, so Barbara is asking, did God forgive the devil when he cast him out of heaven? All right, so um, that was an interesting question because, um, you know, when we read things, we often read it from a particular framework we already have in our heads. So when I say God casting out Satan, I always think right off, okay, well, that was a bad thing, but um, I suppose for some people, it could be a question of, yeah, is, is Satan given a chance to be forgiven? Like, why is he still allowed to run around and do things? Um, so let's let's take a, a, a dive into this, Barbara. Great question. So let's take a look first at the situations when God does give forgiveness. So it, it's something we've talked about before, but it's important to keep in mind. So first, let's check out Acts 8, 22. This is Peter speaking to, I believe, Simon Magus, and he says, Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray to God if, if um, perhaps the thought, you, the thought of your heart may be forgiven of you. So what does he need to do to be forgiven? Peter's saying you need to repent. Uh, then you go to 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Uh, love this verse. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So when will God forgive them and heal their land? It says when they humble themselves, pray, seek his face, um, and turn from their wicked ways. I mean, that's like a good visual understanding of repentance to turn away from the wrong being on the wrong path and going on god's path so um so 
this is the requirement to be forgiven. And then we have Satan now, who's cast out of heaven. So we look at Revelation 12, 9. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into earth, and his angels were cast out with them. Um, so why, um, and was he forgiven? Let's check out the couple verses forward. Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of earth. So for us here on earth, it's a bad thing Satan's cast down. Why? Um, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. He's very angry because he knows that his time is short. So why is he angry? Why is his time short? So obviously he lost. He got booted out of heaven. He's not repented at all, right? He's, uh, and he knows his time is short. God has promised judgment against him. Um, 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. I mean, the, the verse goes on, so this is just a segment of it, but talk about how, you know, the angels, these angels kicked out of heaven now, they're trapped here on earth. They're stuck here waiting to be judged, same time when um, the wicked humans will be judged. Uh, and then Jude 1.6, same thought. And the angels which kept not their first estate, those, so those that didn't stay in heaven, but left their own habitation, he, God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So here it's even more clear that the, the wicked angels are, are trapped here on earth until they're going to be judged. And, and, and I should say not necessarily judged. They've already been judged. They've already been judged as fallen. They've already been found unworthy to be in heaven. And now they're just waiting the final judgment in terms of the execution of the judgment. And the wages of sin is death. And God will purge sin from the whole world. Um, and we see uh, this uh, sort of discussed in um, Ezekiel. So let's flash forward to Ezekiel. And Satan actually is going to be destroyed in a unique way. Ezekiel 28, 16, it says, By the abundance of your trading, and, and I believe this verse is speaking of Satan, it says, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stone. So I kick you out kick you out of heaven. Ezekiel 28, now verses 18 to 19. So going forward a couple. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitudes of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Um, and it's talking about how Satan's trying to bring everybody down with him. Therefore, I brought fire from, from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You've become a horror, and you shall be no more forever. And you're like, well, this is past tense. You're like, yes, this is past tense. But basically, this is God's obituary for Satan. So God has already written the obituary for Satan, and he's going to carry it out. And he will cause fire to just come up even in the midst of Satan, and will devour him. 
and he'll be destroyed forever. Um, so, and it's Satan has not repented. God never wanted it to come to this, but he has to. He has to bring an end to sin. And it's just like, um, just like if you're weeding in the garden, and if you've ever just pulled up a weed and you just pull the top, come back, uh, you know, a week later or two, and it will have shot up even more. And and now you have to dig even deeper. Like you have to yank a weed up by the roots and pull up all those little roots for us. It's going to keep coming back. And it's the same thing with sin. And the root of the sin is Satan. He's the father of all lies. He is a murderer from the beginning and he has to be eliminated or there will always be suffering, pain, death, sorrow. So uh, that's the unfortunate thing. God doesn't want to do it. It's his strange act, as he calls it. But that's that's the, the state of things. Satan has not been forgiven. And judgment has already been determined for him. So, Tina, any thoughts? No, I think that was very well said um, as far as, you know, <laughs> what's the plan for Satan. And I think it actually leads really well into the next question, if you want to bring that up, because it's pretty, it's kind of related. And maybe we should, uh, we have a question from Vlad. Um, and maybe this is a good time. You're like, well, you guys' views are probably a little bit different than most. Um, maybe we could explain that. So Vlad asked. He says, what did, oh, sorry. What, yeah, what denomination are you guys? Um, so basically, Bible Ask is not affiliated with any specific church or denomination. We're a group of Bible-believing Christians who answer Bible questions based on the Bible. So um, <laughs> that's pretty much a summary of who Bible Ask is and what we are about. All right. Okay, so let's go ahead and get our next question up. So Pay Anthony is asking, how did Jesus have innocent blood? I didn't know that was the next question. Oh, it's probably <laughs> not, but <laughs> I could answer that one. Okay, go for it. Um, so, so how does Jesus have innocent blood? And I suppose the implied meaning here is Christ, you know, the alternative would have been he would have sinned and not have innocent blood. Um, I believe the Bible is pretty clear he was innocent. So we see in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 to 19, it says, um, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here Peter is saying, yeah, Christ was perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. Um, and then we find uh, in Hebrews 4, 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Rather, implying Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. But despite that, um, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So. Christ was tempted in every way like we are, and maybe to, you know, to get drunk, to um, be promiscuous, to do this and that and that. Um, but he at all times did not cave into those sins or those temptations, did not sin. Romans 5.19 says, For as one, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So Christ was righteous and will be made, or he was obedient, and through that we will be made righteous. 
Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. This was referring to Christ. And to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and nation. We were redeemed by his blood. He was slain, but he is worthy. Why was he worthy? Because he was the perfect lamb without spot and blemish. Uh, and, and just, you know, you look further down in that same chapter, Revelation 5, verses 11 to 12, it says, and, and then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's like the biggest number these guys could comprehend back then. Um, verse 12, it says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. I mean, we often gloss over these really quickly, but in here is, again, so much of Christ passed the test. Christ was obedient. He made it through. His blood is acceptable because he was innocent, and yet Satan and sin killed him because that's the thing sin does. Sin will destroy even when uh, it's undeserved. Romans 8, 3, 4, the last verse here I'll talk about says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So it wasn't, he wasn't in sinful flesh, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness, sorry, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he condemns sin in the flesh. How did he do it? Why, how did he condemn sin? Again, it is what I just said, because he was perfect. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He was totally innocent. And yet he was murdered. Yet people desired to kill him. Yet, you know, I mean, Satan just wanted to do it. He riled up the mob to kill him. He got the, the rulers, the Romans, everybody to kill Christ. Even though it was perfect. And that was probably the reason he wanted to kill him the most was because he was perfect, because he was innocent, because he was calling out the things they were doing. And that's why he was the most dangerous person, uh, in, even in the eyes of Satan, because Jesus never did anything wrong. And he was proving that we could keep the law of God. It's, it's possible that a human being can do it. He can live by faith and, and fulfill the requirements of law, for, fulfill God's requirement to love. And he did it. And that's why we can now, through him, be saved. And we could go on forever just thinking about the significance of this. But that, he was innocent, and the Bible is very clear on that. So praise God for that. Tina, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think this is a really good question. And when I think about Jesus having innocent blood, um, you know, obviously blood was a, a symbol for the sacrifice um, given for you know man's behalf, and God was very specific of that um, the life is in the blood, and so um, we, it, there's a verse that says we are saved by mm. Christ's life, and so his, his innocent life, his innocent blood, is what uh, you know washes over us and makes us clean, and um, and gives us access to you know to heaven basically. So I just I think of that as well, but I think that was really good. Um, and that's great. That's a good way to connect some dots there too. Yeah. All right. All right.
Let's get our next question up, the one that I think we were waiting for previously. Try to keep track of all of them. All right. So Robbie is asking, God threw Satan out of heaven and said, woe to the earth. Don't sound good. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12. What does it mean? All right, my friend Robbie. Um, let's go ahead and first of all go to those verses in Revelation 12, 7 through 13. And um, I'll just read them pretty quick. Um, so here we go. Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Um, and it reads, and I'm reading from the King James Version. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. So this is a very important um, section of scripture as far as, you know, where we're at um, in earth's history and even, you know, where... Um, God's people were at when this was written, you know, the time of the disciples is that basically, um, before, uh, before Jesus came and he was, you know, crucified and resurrected, Satan actually had access to, you know, to go back up into heaven. We see this, um, in the old Testament, in the book of Job chapter two, verses one and two, where basically, um, in verse one, it says, you know, there came a day where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And so obviously if they're coming before the Lord, this is not on earth. Um, in verse two, basically, and the Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? And Satan answers the Lord. He says, from going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. So basically Satan was like, you know, I, the world is, you know, my <laughs> kingdom in a sense, because he had caused Adam and Eve to fall. And so, um, but Satan was still allowed to go, you know, back up and accuse people to God and, you know, basically harass people in heaven. But once Jesus came and manifested himself in this earth and overcame sin and was cru crucified and resurrected, that's when we see a chain shift. And we see that um, happen in chapter or Revelation chapter 12, like we just read. Um, and I don't want to get too much into it, but basically when it's saying there's war in heaven and um, Michael's angels fought against dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. Basically, Michael um, is another name for Jesus, I believe, before Jesus came to earth. Now, a lot of people go, well, Michael says it's an archangel. Are you saying that Jesus is an angel? Absolutely not. Archangel just means the head of the angels. Jesus is the head of all the angels in heaven. Jesus is the, you know, the commander of the army of heavens. Jesus is God. I'm never saying that Jesus yes. is an angel even just means messenger. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm just making it very clear. <laughs> I'm not saying that Jesus is you know, something less than he is. Jesus is divine. He's God. That's all I'm saying. And so, but here we see this battle between Jesus Christ and Satan and Jesus prevails because Jesus, you know, despite all the temptations that Satan could throw at him, Jesus was successful. He was um, tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And Jesus overcame um, the flesh in his life. Like my brother uh, Jay just mentioned. 
now if you when you keep going down it says um you know god's people you know now that jesus you know gave us the victory we have the victory through jesus christ um like it says in was it first john uh 5 verse 4 um whatsoever is born of god you know the second birth um overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith our faith in jesus christ and so we can have um victory through jesus christ like it says here in verses um 10 and 11. um and in verse 12 i think this is where i think you said <laughs> make it sound a little scary um it says rejoice heavens and you that dwell in them so basically you know the angels up in heaven you know you're you're free, you're rid of Satan, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. Jesus came and accomplished his mission of redeeming mankind through his sacrifice on the cross. And so now Satan knows for sure his fate is sealed. That fate that was set up in the garden of Eden once he caused Adam and Eve to sin. Um, there was a prophecy given against Satan um, that we see right off the bat be, um, between Jesus and and Satan in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And basically that says, um, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Jesus or God is talking to the devil. He says, I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, be between your seed and her seed. So basically there would be someone of the lineage of, you know, of mankind who would, um, destroy <laughs> basically the seed of, of Satan, those who follow after Satan's way ways. It says, it shall bruise your head or basically crush your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So in the process of Jesus crushing the head of Satan, um, Jesus would be, you know, it would be har harmful. It would hurt Jesus in the process. But in and of it, you know, regardless, the head of Satan, you know, would be a deadly blow that Jesus would inflict on him, which Jesus did on the cross. Now, um, as far as, you know, why is there woe come to the earth? It says, because the devil has but a short time. The devil knows he only has a short time before his judgment is here to come. And Jesus speaks about his judgment in Matthew 25 and verse 41, talking about people who follow after Satan, basically. Um, it says, then shall he say to them on the left hand, this is at the judgment, um, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus never prepared um, fire or, you know, basically the lake of fire for people. That wasn't what the lake of fire was for. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. That are, Those are the only ones that God really knew he had to destroy that, that wouldn't, um, wouldn't have a chance at redemption, but we do. But sadly, it's just a matter of our choice, whether or not we're going to choose God's side in life, or we're going to choose the devil's side and his fate, which is death in the fire. Um, and again, you know, as far as, uh, what, you know, this, um, this judgment that Satan has, um, as far as, you know, his judgment, again, we see that in revelation chapter 12. Um, and, um, sorry, I got kind of lost my place there, but basically that, uh, the, you know, the, I'll just summarize that basically the devil is, um, in verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets, prophet are, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. So basically there is a severe judgment coming to the devil and he's just going to do whatever he can before he's out of time 
to um, wreak havoc and bring as many people with him down to that lake of fire. And that's basically the devil's plan. And so if you don't think there's temptations or there's, you know, evils or reasons, you know, you know, lies that the devil puts out there to doubt God or, you know, stray away from God. I mean, you just need to open your eyes <laughs> for just a few minutes and you'll see that there's a lot of working of the devil in so many ways and so many forms that the devil is just trying to keep you know, people away from knowing God and having a saving relationship with him. And that's really what the woe is to the earth that, you know, there is a lot of sin. There's a lot of temptation. It's only going to get worse until Jesus comes. And I always think about, um, you know, the story of Noah and basically how Jesus talks about that in, um, I believe Matthew 24, where he says that, you know, just as the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the son of man. And so, you know, in the time of Noah, like we read in Genesis chapter six and seven, it says the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. There was no chance of these people ever, you know, um, coming back from their life of sin. They, there was it was only evil. There was only selfishness. There was no thought to return back to God. And at that, that point, that's when the Lord destroyed the earth um, in the flood. And it's kind of the same um, message that we're, you know, God's people are giving today is like, hey, there's a judgment coming. The earth is going to be destroyed. You need to get on board and come into God's saving um, ark, which is, you know, a relationship with Jesus and having his blood cover you so that you can be saved um, from the destruction that is to come. And so, um, again, you know, I think it comes to a point where, um, the earth is going to be fully ripe. Like it reads in revelation 14, where, you know, God's people are fully committed, hundred percent loyal to God. And then the devil and his people are fully and committed to sin and selfishness. And that's, I believe the pinnacle of when Jesus comes and, you know, takes his people home. And just one last thing I want to share with you um, that I think was kind of cool as far as, you know, when you look back at that prophecy that God gave to Satan at the beginning when he caused Adam and Eve to fall, he said that Jesus would um, crush his head and it would bruise the heel of Jesus. But um, Paul actually also brings up an important point in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. And I want to leave you with this thought. And it says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so I believe what Paul is saying here is that, yes, Jesus had his role to play in crushing the head of Satan. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And now it is your decision to crush the head of Satan under your feet by the decision you make to follow Jesus. And it is our decision every day by the choices we make, whether or not we're going to to you know, be with Jesus by and crush the head of Satan by choosing God's way and um, love, or we're going to follow after Satan and and receive his destruction um, by choosing our own way in selfishness. So um, I just pray that you would choose God's way and that God will use you to crush the head of Satan in your life and be a blessing to those around you. Uh, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts? Uh, no, that was so beautiful. So thank you for Praise that. God. Um, we have a few comments that have been coming in. Um, uh, first, let, let's uh, shout out to Doug, who is joining us. Uh, and I'll just go ahead and address this one right now, if you want to put Doug's up. So Doug Williams is asking for prayer, saying, Jesus, please heal me of diabetes and to concentrate while driving. And, uh, and we'll definitely pray for you at the end of this show. Yes. And, and also, I want to 
um, encourage you to check out some different resources on this because um, I used to work with a program that teaches people how to reverse diabetes and it was phenomenally successful. I mean, we had, like I had, one of my participants was on, this is particularly for type two diabetes. I want to clarify for that, but one of our participants in the program had been on insulin for um, over 10 years and had never been able to get free from it. And within just over a month in our program, he was actually able to stop his insulin by doc, like he had to by doctors or he was, he was off. No, I'm sorry. He was off three of his medications um, related to his diabetes at the end of the month. And then it was like another month or two later that he was able to, to get out of the insulin. And so um, it, it, there are so many ways using utilizing a plant-based diet in particular, that's a key component of it. Um, but if you want to reach out to us via email, we would be happy to put you in touch with some resources that could help you in in that situation. Does it matter so, if it's type one or type two? Yes, type two does. It, like type two is one that is is reversible in a lot of situations. Type one is not always or is is generally not reversible. So so, so Doug, you, there um, might be hope and yes, and yeah, if you have questions, mm -hmm. reach out to us and we could try put into you in touch with some of those programs. Yes, there are some fantastic resources for reversing type 2 diabetes. If you're, if you're really committed to to make the changes to do it. And yes. and it actually has a lot to do with also understanding God's plan, how he made us. So it, it could be even a, a great spiritual experience as well. Exactly. Um, and Doug for, says he has type 2. Yeah. So thank you for clarifying that. And we pray that um, God will definitely be uh, healing you and that you'll make decisions um, or find some resources that will help you um, gain healing through some natural, some natural ways. Um, uh, I see another comment from our friend Vlad. Yeah, yes, so it's a couple, a couple that go together, it looks like. So the first one is saying, how do you guys feel about others having different interpretations of the same book, the potential of different meanings if being read in different languages? And then the next part of this is an example is Muslims are taught the Bible and see those in it, Jesus, Moses, and so on, as prophets whose teachings are just as important to them as Muhammad. I love this question. And I think there's probably two different questions in there. Um, so first, what do we think about there being different interpretations or maybe should I say different versions of the Bible, different translations? And and I think, Vlad, you kind of answer it partially with your, your question, too, which is, yeah, the Bible was written in, you know, ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, these languages that we aren't using really anymore. We don't speak it, and we're having to translate them into English. And we just have words that don't carry over well. There's idioms that don't carry over well. History has changed so much. The way we live culturally is so different. So it's very hard to translate something in these languages and put it into words that we will fully, you know, very concisely get the full meaning of it. And so for that reason, I do like having multiple translations uh, and consulting multiple translations so you get the full bigger picture. And when you start seeing the differences in them, you get a, more of an idea of, of, yeah, the play, the range of possibilities. Um, and, and it gives you a better idea of what that original word might have meant but even better for me i really have um feel like my spiritual growth has really grown every time i have tried to translate for myself 
and I dig deep and learn those words, understand, read them for myself in the Hebrew and Greek. And we are so blessed in this day and age to have easy access to the tools to do that, uh, especially the Blue Letter Bible app, which uh, we reference a lot here. It gives you the tools where you can just see the, the original words, your words, and you could dig into the meanings and um, more background on those Hebrew Greek words. Um, and if you have a lot of money to drop, you could always get Logos. That's like the the, the golden standard of um, Bible research and translation. So it's this really expensive program. I've heard it like 500, 1,000 bucks a month, um, somewhere like that. But you get access to a ton of resources then. Yeah. Um, if I can just touch on this really yeah. quick too. Um, you're talking about people having different interpretations of the same book and you're comparing um, Muslims with, um, Christians. Oh, yeah. sorry. So then, yeah, friends, that'll I be was... the second question. So yeah, go ahead and answer that sort of that second part of the question. Yeah. So it just, um, you know, that Muslims are taught the Bible to a certain extent. Um, it, their interpretation of the Bible is very different. And the, like, there's a lot of people, like there's the same name, but like they do different things, like things like that kind of going on, like Moses, um, in their understanding of of you know what Moses did is different and like Abraham. Um so they have the same characters but in in the Quran they do different things. So it's a little bit yeah. different as far as how their stories go. So you just have to be, you know, cognizant of that. And um you know when it talks when you talk about, you know, people having different interpretations, you know, I think I think God gives us freedom to choose what, you know, what we want to believe and um you know what um you know basically just freedom of thought a freedom, you know, to, to think as we want to. But when it comes to interpreting the Bible, I think we have to be very careful just because, um, you know, just as far as deciding what is truth and what we're going to believe. And the Bible has a lot of guidance about that. Like it says in Isaiah chapter eight and verse 20, um, it says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, you know, the Bible it is because there's no light in them. And so we have to be careful that um, you know, if somebody's making an interpretation of something in the Bible, that it goes along with all of Scripture. Um, God talks about there being needing to have two or three witnesses. There should be at least two verses <laughs> of of something on that topic or that doctrine in order to establish it as truth based on Scripture. And um, I think that First John actually has a really important um, uh, lesson in it as well. In First John chapter four, um, in verses one and one through three, and I'll just read this real quick. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you that the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So this is really important that um, those that are interpreting the Bible and telling you things out of the Bible are saying that Jesus Christ has come in the, come in the flesh. Um, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whether you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. So we have to make sure that, you know, we are, um, whatever we're choosing to believe that we're basing it on scripture and we're basing it on the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is come in the flesh and Jesus is who he says he is. And so I think, um, those are really key as far as, um, basing, um, Basing the truth on God's word, um, that it, it's a you know it's consistent with God's word, and that it is in harmony with um, who God says He is. Yeah, and I just wanted to share on that as well that you know talking about kind of different interpretations or different perspectives within 
you know, the context of, yes, is it, is it, is it in alignment with who God is, the character of God? Um, it beyond that, there's always going to be different perspectives because it's like, if you hold up a coin and you have two people look at that coin and they're going to see different things. One's looking at one side possibly, and one's looking at the other side. So everything does have different perspectives and thus, thus different kind of interpretations about it. But it, yes, it does go back to ultimately, is it consistent with God's character? And what are the things that we can be learning from this to grow in his likeness, to, 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 move, to allow our character to be more like his? And, and maybe Tina touched on it a little bit, but also I don't think uh, the Quran is, is sort of like another interpretation of the Bible. And I'm, I'm not going to speak badly about it, but it's, I mean, I think of like if you watch Star Trek and you think of what J.J. Abrams' version of Star Trek did to the timeline and he, the Star Trek in the J.J. Abrams universe is completely different. You know, things that happen in um, the main timeline of, of Star Trek Next Generation don't happen, don't take place at all in, in the J.J. Abrams universe. And then who, people are good or bad vice versa split like everything is completely different and it's kind of it's kind of that way when you compare the bible and the quran where things can be easily reversed switch different completely is almost like an alternate universe when you're reading the book so um there really are different religions with some similarities yeah claiming to have similar characters at times but they really are different Definitely. And, you know, and I say that we say this with, you know, complete respect to people who are Muslim faith and, you know, we respect all faiths and all beliefs out there. Um, we're just speaking, you know, according to the Bible, this is what the Bible says. So we just hope that's clear as well. And, you know, we, we love all our brothers and sisters in the world. So I think they agree with us too. <laughs> we're different. We're different. Yeah, we're different, but we love each other and we have full respect for our brothers and sisters out there in every faith. All right. I think we're pretty much out of time. I know we have, I think still a few more questions we didn't get to, but yeah, I think we might have to wait for next week to, <laughs> to get to them. So that's too bad. I'm sorry. But if you have a question that you submitted and it wasn't answered tonight, please join us again next week. Uh, we're here every Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and so if, again, if you have a question you'd like to formally uh, submit to our, our, um, to our show so that we can address it and feature it on our weekly program, um, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live. And we're more than happy to um, feature your question and, and give it the answer it deserves. And so um, again, we pray that you are blessed by our show. And if you are, be sure to like and share our content and um, just be a blessing to those around you. Um, with hopefully with as Bible ask is to you, um, because you know we're just here as volunteers. We love sharing God's word, and we just want to share the gospel as much as possible. And so we appreciate all you, our faithful viewers, um, helping us out with that. And also, just I know that our director has put up the webs or the our email if you want to get in touch with us. I know our our brother Doug Williams um, asked for our email. It's info at bibleask.org. So if you have um, a question or a prayer request, uh, be sure to reach out to us and, and contact us as well, because we are definitely here to pray for you as well as part of uh, the family of God. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Jay, when do you want to pray for us? Yeah, let's do it. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, again, this time that we can come together all over the world and pray a special blessing for each and every person who uh, joined us live and those who will also watch later on. May your spirit guide each and every one of them, as well as us, into your truth that we may um, have better discernment, that we can uh, be with you through all of eternity and be able to resist the temptations that Satan throws our way. And I also pray right now a special blessing for our friend Doug, and that you will um, heal his body, help him to overcome diabetes, and um, give him the motivation, inspiration, knowledge, whatever it takes to also make the changes to um, really have that uh, victory over the disease. And we thank you for um, all the remedies that you have out of love given us in this world and for the health laws that you've put in place and for our benefit even. And just again, pray that you can make these things known to him in his health journey. and. Um, and just for all of everybody again tuning in here, pray special blessing for them all. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And again, we look forward to seeing you all again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We pray you have a blessed evening and a good week, and we'll see you then. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us.